You know, one of the most amazing things about being a Seventh-day Adventist is that you can travel anywhere in the world and have church family. Amen. So it's good to be with you here. I was in Malaysia um, over uh, 99-2000. I was actually here for Y2K, which was a very unmonumental moment in the history of this earth. But it's good to be back with you again uh, here in Malaysia to serve the Lord, to study His Word, to grow, and to be ready for His soon coming. Scripture tells us in Psalms chapter 122, verse 1, I was glad when they said unto me, Let us go into the house of the Lord. Are you glad this morning? This place has been arranged as the house of the Lord, and the Bible tells us to come with gladness in our hearts. Well, as you already know, my name is Jason Sliger. I introduced myself last night. I'm from northern Michigan, right underneath the UP, the Upper Peninsula. I'm in one of the most beautiful places in Michigan. I might be a little biased, but that's what I think. When I left to come to Malaysia, I drove to the airport in a snowstorm, and I know that's hard for you all to imagine. Well, we had quite a bit of snow on the ground, slipping and sliding all over the place. They had to de-ice the plane and all that fun stuff. And after two days, here I am in the beautiful tropics. The wonders of modern travel and technology. You know, back in Ellen White's time, they'd take a couple of months to get to Malaysia on a boat sailing across the ocean. But with modern technology, we are able to come together as a family. I have a wife and two beautiful children who I unfortunately had to leave behind. I have a daughter three years old. Her name is Evangeline. We named her that because it means one who bears the gospel, and that's what we want our daughter to do. I have a son who is one. His name is Christian, which means to be like Christ, and we named him that because that's what we want him to be, to be like Christ. And right now, it is about 10 to midnight, and they are fast asleep in their beds. But those of you here sitting here this morning or this afternoon will not be going to sleep. Would you say amen? Amen. So that's enough of all of that. You have come here to hear the word of the Lord, and so we won't delay it any longer. I invite you to bow your heads with me, and we will start with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we have come with gladness in our hearts into the house of the Lord this morning. We are in anticipation of the moving of the Holy Spirit. It has already taken place in the morning worship and in Sabbath school. But Father, we as your children have chose to tarry just a little longer to have that upper room experience. So Lord, we invite you to be with us here this morning. Speak through this empty vessel, I pray. Put your words in my mouth. In Jesus' name. It was late one evening. After a long day of ministering, healing the sick, preaching the gospel, a well-dressed man, wealthy, in a high-ranking position in society, intrigued with the simplicity and the power of Jesus came to him with a request for a midnight conversation. Nicodemus chose the cover of darkness 
because he was fearful of the effects that an interview with Jesus might have on his social position and his religious rank. But it's interesting that we are told in the spirit of prophecy that Nicodemus was not alone in his interest in Jesus. This is from the Bible, Bible Echo, October 8, 1894. It says, In the times of Christ, there were many priests that believed on him, but they would not acknowledge him for fear they would be turned out of the synagogue. They feared the disgrace if they followed the footsteps of Christ. What was the motivation for concealing this belief in Christ, both with Nicodemus and the other priests who believed in Jesus? Well, they feared the social implications of acting on their convictions. They wanted Jesus, but they also wanted what the world had to offer. And maybe in some way you can identify with this great paradox in the, in the innocence and openness of your heart. The desire for Jesus, but also the desire for acceptance in the world. And so I ask you a question this morning, and this is the theme of our study. What does it take to stand up against the pressures of our time. Nicodemus had a hard time with it. The priests had a hard time with it. Many people had a hard time with it in the time of Christ. They believed in him, but they feared the social implications of coming out in that belief. What does it take to stand against the social pressures of our time? I believe, quite simply put, what it requires is moral courage. Now, I'm not talking about the type of courage of a soldier on the battlefield who fights some valiant battle for the sake of freedom, suffers some sort of physical malady because of that. I'm not talking about the courage of the athlete who fights in the, or, or, or plays in the last part of the game even though he is hurt. Both of these may be admirable, but this is not the courage I'm talking about. The courage that I'm talking about is the courage that it takes to stand up against the pressures of our time. It's difficult to explain. It's hard to define. But it's easier to illustrate. And so I invite you to go with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Kings 22. 1 Kings chapter 22, the last chapter of the great historic book. 1 Kings chapter 22, and here we will look at an example of moral courage. In 1 Kings chapter 22, we find a short little story about an obscure prophet of God, an Ephraimite, most likely from the city of Samaria. His name is Micaiah, which means who is like God. If you ever have a son, Micaiah is a good name to give him. 
Micaiah came at a time when the atmosphere was cold and dark and wicked. The king at the time was Ahab, who has become synonymous with corrupt leaders. Ahab, in just the the, the previous chapter, in chapter 21, the Bible tells us there that he sold his soul to work wickedness. This was the man that was on the throne at this time. He was a spineless man who was weak and wicked, which is a very dangerous combination. And it was to this time and to this man that Micaiah, who is like God, was to address him. But before we get into the story of Micaiah, let me just give you a little historical background. In chapter 22 and verse 1, we find that there has been three years of peace in Ahab's kingdom. Hasn't been any wars And Ahab was a man of war. He didn't like times of peace. He understood what most dictators understood, and that is if you keep the people engaged in war, you will maintain their loyalty to you. And so he was looking for some place to go make war, to make battle, and he came up with this idea of making war against against Ramoth Gilead. Now, three years prior to this, Ahab went into battle with Uh, uh, with a man. And when he went into battle with him, he was able to get back many of the cities that rightfully belonged to him. But Ramoth Gilead was one of the cities that he was not able to get back. And so he wanted to go make war and get this city that rightfully belonged to him. But he didn't want to do it on his own. He needed somebody to come along with him. In fact, it was a family member that he chose to come along, a man who was a skilled military general and was feared for his leadership. His name is Jehoshaphat. We pick up the story in verse 4. The Bible says this, And he said, this is Ahab, said unto Jehoshaphat, Wilt thou go with me to battle? To Ramoth Gilead. And listen to this. And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as thou art, my people as thy people, my horses as thy horses. Basically, he was saying, whatever you want, I'm here. I will go with you into battle. Now, lest you get a bad perspective on Jehoshaphat, let me just say something to him, say something about him. He ruled in the south. Ahab ruled in the the north. And Jehoshaphat, if you read, there's a chapter in, in the Spirit of Prophecy on Jehoshaphat. And if you read that chapter, you'll find he was actually a spiritual man. He was the one who led the Reformation, a revival and Reformation in Judah. He was a man of God who wanted to keep the wickedness of Ahab in the north from infiltrating what was happening in the south. But unfortunately, at some point in his reign, Jehoshaphat had a, had a lapse in his better judgment, and he let his son, Jehoram, marry a young lady by the name of Athaliah, who just so happened to be the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. And through this unequally yoked marriage, 
This man of God was connected with the most wicked man at that time in Earth's history. And no doubt he probably felt some sort of family obligation to help him in this battle. And so he says, all that I have is yours. I will go into battle with you. Now let's look at the next verse. Verse 5, the Bible says this. And Jehoshaphat said unto the king of Israel, inquire, I pray thee, at the word of the Lord today. How many of you think that's a good idea to inquire of the Lord? That was about two of you. What in the world are you doing at AOI? How many of you think it's a good idea to inquire of the word of the Lord? That was about 50% of you. I don't know what the rest of you are doing here. He said, inquire, I pray thee, of the word of the Lord. Now, here's the thing. When I read the story, I thought to myself, hang on a second. Jehoshaphat got things a little mixed up here. First, he makes the commitment to Ahab. Then he says, ask the Lord what he wants us to do. Shouldn't Jehoshaphat had first said, ask the Lord, and then we'll talk later. That's a lesson for us to learn. Never to enter into partnership with someone or something without first inquiring of the word of the Lord. Would you say amen? Amen. So he says, inquire, I pray thee, of the word of the Lord. Ahab didn't really care too much about the Lord. Mount Carmel had already happened at this point. Elijah had slain the 450 prophets of Baal. The whole scenario, the whole showdown had already happened up up to this point. Ahab could care less about what the word of the Lord was. What Ahab wanted, that's what Ahab got. But Ahab knew his man. Ahab knew that that Jehoshaphat was not going to be convinced unless he heard from the word of the Lord. So, the Bible tells us in verse 6, Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, and said unto them, Shall I go up against Ramoth-Gilead to battle, or shall I forbear? And they said, Go up, for the Lord shall deliver it into the hand of the king. We don't even have 400 people here. Can you imagine 400 prophets all in unanimous agreement to go up and fight against Ramoth-Gilead? That would seem pretty convincing to me. If there were 400 prophets. But Jehoshaphat, even though he had that lapse in judgment letting his son marry Athaliah, he still had a connection with the Lord, which is an illustration of the mercy that we have in our Savior. Amen? Amen. Even though we make these huge blunders in our lives, his mercy is still there for us. And so Jehoshaphat's not quite convinced with these 400 prophets and their unanimous agreement. So Jehoshaphat makes another request in verse 7. And Jehoshaphat said, is there not here a what? Of the? A prophet of the what? Could it be that Jehoshaphat is insinuating that these 400 prophets are not prophets of the Lord? Is there a prophet of the Lord besides that we may inquire of him? You know, it's funny to me. If, if Jehoshaphat's not convinced by 400 prophets, what are we to, why, who, are, who are we to think that he'd be convinced by 401? Right? But he still says, is there a prophet of the Lord that we may inquire of him? Now listen to this. Here's where our man comes in. Verse 8. And the king of Israel said unto Jehoshaphat, there is yet... Underline that word. Words. 
there is yet one man, Micaiah, the son of Imla, uh, by whom we may inquire of the Lord. But, what does the Bible say? What does it say? How many of you like being hated? Nobody likes being hated. In fact, when there was this great conclave of the 400 prophets that came to hear uh, Ahab's request or Ahab's question, Micaiah was not invited to that great conclave. There is but one, Micaiah, who is like God. But the Bible says, Ahab said, I hate him. Why? For he doth not prophesy good concerning me, but you wouldn't expect a man of God to prophesy good about such a wicked man, would you? Doesn't prophesy good, but he prophesies evil. And Jehoshaphat said, let not the king say so. Well, I guess this pretty much sums up Ahab's feelings and sentiments towards Micaiah. He doesn't like him. He came right out and said, I hate this one man who is like God. Micaiah, I hate him. That's what you have to look forward to. Being a man or a woman of God, you will be hated by the wicked people of this world. But that doesn't matter as long as we're faithful to God. You see, Ahab wanted men that would tell him exactly what he wanted to hear. He had ears that needed to be itched. And the Bible tells us in the last days that this same thing is going to happen. That there would be those that would heap to themselves teachers having itching ears and that they would turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. May God protect you from being one of that group. Amen. It's interesting to me, as I mentioned, Mount Carmel uh, has already happened. The 450 prophets have been slain. And over the three years from that point till the current time where we're at in our story, Ahab has steadily been building up another group of religious men that would tell him exactly what he wanted to hear. We call these false prophets. They didn't have moral integrity. They didn't have moral courage. They were simply puppets on the hand of the king that danced according to his pleasure. But here's the peculiar thing to me as I looked at the idea of moral courage in the Bible and as I went through one Bible character after another in my mind that fit the description of moral courage in this story, what I found interesting is this. Moral courage does not show up oftentimes in the Bible in groups, but moral courage shows up one hated person at a time. Micaiah's. Daniel's, John the Baptist's, Jesus, Paul, all these great men of moral courage, one hated man at a time. Well, Ahab needed Jehoshaphat, and so he consented 
to go and get Micaiah. He sends off a messenger to go get him. And while the messenger is running to wherever Micaiah lived, the rest of the 400 prophets and the two kings, Ahab and Jehoshaphat, they come to the gate of the city of Samaria and they set up this beautiful uh, meeting there. The, 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 the kings are dressed in their finest robes. The prophets are there singing and dancing to the tune of Ahab. They are telling him exactly what he wants to hear over and over and over again. That if he goes to Ramoth Gilead, that he would be successful in fighting this war. This is what's going on as the messenger is running to go get Micaiah. He shows up. The messenger shows up. And this is what he says. Listen to this in verse 13. And the messenger that was gone to call Micaiah spake unto him, saying, listen to what the messenger says, Behold now, the words of the prophets declare good unto the king with what? One mouth. Let thy word, I pray thee, be like the word of one of them, and speak that which is good. You know, as I think about this man, the Bible doesn't even name him. In fact, the messenger is a eunuch. He's just a, a, a common person off on the side who does whatever the king wants him to do. But this man understood the man that was being dealt with, Ahab. And so when he comes to Micaiah, he says, Micaiah, I've got a piece of advice for you. There are 400 prophets who are all unanimous that Ahab should do exactly what he wants to do. And you, it would be a good idea if you just went along with them. Probably well-meaning advice. But as we're going to see here in a few moments, it was not advice that was in line with the Word of God. There are going to be times in your life where somebody is going to come and give you advice. There are many people who want to give you advice. Some of the advice will be good. Some of it will not be good. And all advice that is given to you, my young friends, must be viewed through the lens of God's word. Would you say amen? amen? And any advice that does not go according to the word of God, by God's grace, may you have the moral courage to stand for what the Bible says instead of what others have to say. So he gives them this advice. Say what the rest of the prophets are saying. You see, Micaiah was on Ahab's hate list. He said that. I hate him. And that eunuch heard that. And so the eunuch knew that Micaiah was on Ahab's hate list. And his advice was, don't get on his hit list. As I mentioned, Ahab got whatever he wanted. Read the previous chapter, chapter 21. Don't read it right now. Read it later on. It's the story of Naboth's vineyard. How many of you remember that story, Naboth's vineyard? Naboth had this beautiful vineyard right next to the palace of Ahab. It was beautiful, and Ahab decided one day, I want that for a vegetable garden. 
And so he goes down to Naboth and he says, Naboth, give it to me. And Naboth says, no, it's been in my family for a long time. I'm going to keep it. And Ahab gets upset and he goes home and he lays down on his bed with his face towards the wall and he pouts because he can't have what he wants. Jezebel comes in and she sees that her husband is distressed. And he, she asks him, what's going on? And he tells her all the things that have happened. And she says, dress and be merry. I will get Naboth's vineyard for you. And so she goes out. And in, an, in a corrupt court, she brings false charges against Naboth. And she accuses him of blasphemy, this fine, upstanding man. And Naboth is taken outside of the city, and he is stoned to death. And when he, she comes back, she gives Ahab the very vineyard that he wanted for a vegetable garden. And Ahab did not even ask any questions. He took it, and that was it. What Ahab wanted, Ahab got. And Micaiah had to stand before him. The pressures were there. The pressures that you know nothing about. The pressure was closing in around Micaiah to conform to what society demanded. There were political pressures to be accepted and received by the king. To be, to be held in high esteem in the eyes of this most powerful man. Two most powerful men. Ahab and Jehoshaphat. There were religious pressures. 400 prophets were in uni unity. There was religious pressure to conform to what the rest of the religious community had to say. Because if he didn't, he would be viewed as an outcast and some sort of religious fanatic. There were self-preservation pressures. All he had to say was just a couple of words, and that would be it. His head could be cut off right then and there. Pressure was pressing in around Micaiah to conform to the king's demand and the opinion of popular society. And this man of God, obedient to the king's command, makes his way down to visit the king. But before he does that, Micaiah makes a statement of moral courage in verse 14. And if you have notes or if you're underlying your Bible, this is the key Bible passage in our study this morning. 1 Kings 22 and verse 14, the Bible says this, And Micaiah said, As the Lord liveth, what the Lord saith unto me, that Will I speak? That's moral courage. What the Lord saith unto me, that will I speak. And that's what Micaiah said to this messenger. Listen carefully. This is from Sermons and Talks, volume 2, page 308. The servant of the Lord says this. If ever there was a time in the history of the Seventh-day Adventists when they should arise and shine, it is now. Amen? Amen? It's our theme. Now is the time. Listen to this. No voice. How many voices? How many voices? No voice should be restrained from proclaiming the third angel's message. That means every single one of you here this morning can proclaim the three angels' messages by God's grace. No voice should be restrained from proclaiming the third angel's message. Listen, listen, listen. Let none 
for fear of losing prestige with the world, obscure one ray of light coming from the source of all light. She says this, it requires moral courage to do the work of God for these last days. What does it require to do the work of the Lord in these last days? It requires Micaiahs that have moral courage who live by the mantra, whatever the Lord says unto me, that will I speak. But let none of us be led by the spirit of human wisdom. The truth, the what? The truth should be everything to us. I only heard one amen. amen. The truth should be everything to us. That means everything else in your life is on the back burner. The truth is the most important thing. Amen. The truth should be everything to us. And then she says, let those who want to make a name with the world go with the world. Don't play Christianity. If you want the world, don't bring the world inside the church because you want the world, but go to the world. And I'm not advising you to do this. I'm advising you to allow the Holy Spirit to cleanse your heart and to change your spiritual taste buds so that you will want spiritual things instead of what the world has to offer. Now is the time, she says. As the Lord liveth, what the Lord saith unto me, that will I speak. Moral courage. But you know what? Words are cheap. You can say anything you want. But Micaiah backs up his words by his actions. Let's continue the story. Verse 15, it goes on and it says this. So, so he came to the king, and the king said unto him, Micaiah, shall we go up against Ramoth Gilead to battle, or shall we forbear? And he answered him, Go and prosper, for the Lord shall deliver it into the hand of the king. Ahab puts the same question to Micaiah that he did to the 400 prophets. It's identical. And Micaiah, who wasn't there when the question was asked the first time, gives verbatim the same answer that the 400 prophets gave, except for two words, and prosper. Other than that, it's identical. Now, it's obvious in the next verse that Micaiah made this statement in a mocking and scornful way. In fact, there was probably even a little tone of sarcasm, maybe in the voice of Micaiah. Verse 16, the Bible goes on and it says, And the king said unto him, How many times shall I adjure thee that thou tell me nothing but that which is true in the name of the Lord? Isn't that funny coming from the mouth of Ahab? Tell me the word of the Lord. So Micaiah says, oh, so it's the truth you want all of a sudden? Well, it's the truth you shall have. And he says in verse 17, and he said, I saw Israel scattered upon the hills as sheep that have not a shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master. Let them return every man to his house in peace.
In Numbers chapter 27, as, Mo- as Moses is getting ready to go up into the mountain to die, he asks the Lord, please give the children of Israel a leader. Anoint a man, put your hand upon him and anoint him as a leader, lest the children of Israel be like sheep without a shepherd. When Micaiah makes this statement to Ahab that he saw Israel scattered like sheep without a shepherd, he's in a sense telling him that the leader is gone and no longer there. He was telling Ahab that he was going to die if he went into battle. Do you think that gave Ahab warm, fuzzy feelings? Yes or no? Probably not. (laughs) In fact, we we see him kind of fly into a bit of a rage uh, after Micaiah makes this statement. In... uh, In verse 18, it says, And the king of Israel said unto Jehoshaphat, Didn't I not tell thee that he would prophesy no good concerning me but evil? Kind of gets a little upset by Micaiah saying, You're going to die if you go into battle. And he flies into this fit of rage. But Micaiah is unmoved because he's a man of moral courage. And to him, the highest authority in his life is God, not Ahab. And every morning you need to reckon with that question. Who is the highest authority in your life? You can say it's God, but is it really? Micaiah is giving us a demonstration that God was the highest authority in his life. And as soon as Ahab flies into this rage of uh, how, how Micaiah, he says evil and not good to him all the time, Micaiah moves right on and he tells him more about what the Lord told him. And he tells him this parable in the next few verses about this great heavenly council that took place. And in this heavenly council, there was one item on the agenda. And that one item on the agenda was how to destroy Ahab. Now, again, this is a, pro- this is a parable. It's not literal. That's the one item on the agenda. And they're having this meeting and, and various uh, angelic beings comes up with different ideas of how they could destroy Ahab. But then there's this one spirit, the Bible says, who comes and says to the Lord, I will do it. The Lord says, okay, well, what's your plan? And the spirit says, I will go forth and be a lying spirit in the mouth of his prophets. Lord says, ah, that's a good idea. Go and do it, and you will be successful. What Micaiah said to the king about that parable, about the prophets having a lying spirit in their mouth, he's not just saying it to King Ahab, he's saying it to us today too. He's saying, be careful of those whose advice you hold and admire. Be careful of the preachers that you choose to listen to. Be careful of the books that you choose to read. Be careful of the officials in your life who you follow their advice. Be careful of the experts 
that you trust. Micaiah is speaking to us 4,000 years later. He's saying, be careful, because there are lying spirits in the mouth of people around you. And if you follow their advice, it's not going to end well. Listen, Micaiah is telling Ahab, you're not going to die because of an earthquake. You're not going to die because of some lightning bolt from heaven. But you will die because you chose to listen to the advice of the prophets that you had chosen. That's why you would die. And Micaiah is telling us today, be careful of those that you hold their counsel as something that is valuable. Friends, there is only one piece of advice that we need, and that is follow this book all the way to the pearly gates. Don't choose people that you like and follow their advice. But choose people who you think won't lie to you. Right? Listen, if you have cancer, I hope none of you ever get it, but if you have cancer, you're not going to go to a doctor that always tells you that you're healthy. It might make you feel good to know that you're healthy, but you will die because of their advice. You want somebody that's going to give you the truth no matter how hard it is to take. But all of a sudden when it comes into the religious world, we don't want people to tell us the truth because we get offended. And the first Bible passage that pops into our head is don't judge. Instead of maybe pausing for a moment and thinking, could God be actually using this person to speak some truth to me? And going back in our hearts, being broken in our prayer time with God, and ask Him, Lord, mold me and shape me according to Your will. If I need to change, so be it. But Lord, all I want is Your will in my life. You know what? Micaiah was put in prison for what he did. The Bible doesn't say anything else about him. That's pretty much where it stops. There's a little physical abuse of Micaiah shortly after the story. One of the priests smacks him in the face, which reminds me of the story of Jesus. And then Ahab gives the decree for him to be taken, to be, to, to be secured, and to be hauled off into prison. And that's all we know about Micaiah. He may have died in prison. He may have been released. But Ahab tells him to feed him with the food of affliction and to give him the water of affliction to drink. So it wasn't going to be easy for Micaiah. But he was a man who had moral courage. So Ahab goes to battle. I'll just summarize the rest of the story for you. You can read it on your own. He goes into battle and he takes a small piece of advice from Micaiah. And he decides to go into war disguised. You know, usually back in the Bible times when the king would go into battle, he would wear his, his, he would have a special outfit. Everybody knew this was the king. And so Ahab says to Jehoshaphat, I don't know why Jehoshaphat did this, but he says to Jehoshaphat, he says, listen, you wear your royal robes, I'm going to disguise myself as a common soldier. And that's what Jehoshaphat does. I still don't understand that. I'm going to ask him about that when I get to heaven one day, if he's there. So Jehoshaphat wears his kingly garments. Ahab dresses in a normal soldier's. He's disguised himself, and they go off into battle to fight against Ramoth Gilead. All the 400 prophets said, go, and you will be successful. One prophet of the Lord, 
A man who was like God said, if you go, you will die. And Israel will be scattered like sheep without a shepherd. The odds were that the 400 prophets would be right and the one man would be wrong. But they went into battle. And in the heat of the battle, somebody on the other side pulled back an arrow. And he shot it into the air. And that arrow was led by the hand of God. And it went through a chink in Ahab's armor and hit him right in the side. And his royal blood was shed and fell to the ground, fell on his chariot, and Ahab died that day because of the prophecy of a man of God. Moral courage. He wasn't rewarded for that, but he did it because he knew what was right. Many times when we look at these stories of courageous men and women in the Bible, we think to ourselves, sure, I would have done that if I was there. I would have preached like Noah because you see the end of the story and Noah was saved. I would have went to battle like David because you see the end of the story and you see David there cutting off the head of Goliath. I would have been like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because you see them in the fiery furnace walking with Jesus. But what about Micaiah? He wasn't protected. He was thrown into prison. Let me tell you something this morning, my friends. You will never stand like Micaiah, like David, like John the Baptist, and like Daniel, if you don't learn how to have moral courage in your everyday life. Moral courage does not just come instantaneously. It is something that builds every single day, every decision that you make. Micaiah had moral courage. What about you? Do you have the moral courage to get up early on Sabbath morning and actually go to Sabbath school and church? Oh, we skipped Sabbath school because we've worked hard all week long and we deserve a time to sleep in. Let me tell you something, friends. It takes moral courage to get up early on Sabbath morning and go to church and Sabbath school. That's the little moral courage is in your life. Do you have the moral courage to pay a faithful 10% of your income to God when you're having a hard time making ends meet financially? Do you have the moral courage to get involved actively in your church when everybody else is sitting on the sidelines and when you young people see the adults who are living a hypocritical life and you're discouraged by that hypocrisy in the church, do you have the moral courage to say, I'm going to make a difference. I'm not going to live like that. But I'm going to give my heart to the Lord and give the next generation a good example of what it means to be a solid Seventh-day Adventist Christian. Those of you that are adults in the crowd, give the young people a good example. 
Show them what it means to have moral courage. The young people of today are starved for good examples in their lives. Sure, they're all in the Bible, but they don't see it in the church. I remember when I was a young man in high school and I saw the hypocrisy in the church. I said, if that's Christianity, forget it. I don't want to have anything to do with it. And then God grabbed a hold of me and he said, Jason, stop looking at the people and start looking to me. That was a radical transformation in my life. But unfortunately, some young people don't do that. Adults, give them a good example. Show them how beautiful it is have a relationship with Jesus. Spirit of Prophecy says in several places she talks about moral courage, and I won't go through all of the quotes, but I have a four-page document on this. If you want it, write your email down legibly, give it to me, and I will email it to you. Key word is legibly. But she says it takes moral courage to walk the path that leads to heaven. These are the little things in our lives that have big impacts. It takes moral courage to overcome the weaknesses of our character. In Testimonies to the Church at Battle Creek, page 61, she says, the majority of our youth in this age have no strength to resist temptation. It takes moral courage to resist temptation. It takes moral courage to follow the health laws to get exercise, to drink enough water, to get enough sleep, to eat food, to say no to that extra portion that comes your way that you love so much. It takes moral courage to follow the health principles. Interestingly enough, she has a lot to say about moral courage and dress. It takes moral courage to oppose the worldly customs and fashions You know, some of us spent more time this morning getting ready for church than we spent reading the Bible this morning. Am I speaking the truth? It's sad. It's really sad. And please don't feel like I'm rebuking you because I used to be like that. That's the only reason why I know. So concerned about the outside. And what people see on my face or the clothes that I wear, the words that come out of my mouth, so obsessed with the outside. She says it takes moral courage to resist that. She says it takes moral courage to keep the Ten Commandments. That's pretty basic stuff, isn't it? So let's conclude by asking this question. We've given an example of what moral courage is, but the question now is, where does it come from? Where does moral courage come from when I feel convicted by God to give a year of my life in service to him and my family says, don't throw away a year of your life doing that? Where does moral courage come from to resist that influence in my life? Where does moral courage come from when I'm sleeping in my room, I'm sitting in my bedroom, and nobody knows where I am at, and in the stillness of that night, the, the devil comes and tempts me to look at pornography when nobody else is looking. Where does the moral courage come from to resist that temptation? 
Where does moral courage come from for you young ladies when you wake up in the morning and you look at your wardrobe and decide what you're going to wear and you decide to wear something that reveals more than what you should reveal because you want some young man to look at you? Where does the moral courage come from to say, no, I'm going to properly clothe my body because I'm a daughter of God? Where does moral courage come from? To resist the urge to spend more time on Facebook than I spend on my, in my Bible. Where does moral courage come from? It comes from doing an audience analysis. Now, I'm not talking about sermons here or homiletics or anything like that. It comes from doing an audience analysis. What do I mean by that? The 400 prophets did an audience analysis, and it boiled down to two, Ahab and Jehoshaphat. And that audience, Ahab and Jehoshaphat, they decided that they would tell these two men anything that they wanted to hear to keep them happy. But on the other hand, Micaiah did an audience analysis. Sure, he stood before 400 prophets, Sure, he was standing before these two powerful earthly men. Sure, he was standing before a vast throng of people. But as Micaiah stood at the gate of Samaria on this historic day in his life that most of us have never even heard of, Micaiah was standing before one, God himself. And Micaiah was determined that whatever God said, that's what he would do. Micaiah had an audience of one, and that audience of one gave him the moral courage to do what was humanly impossible. It's tough stuff. Bar's pretty high. It's tough because we want to be accepted by society. It's tough because we want to be accepted by our friends at school. It's tough because we want to be accepted by our family. It's tough because we lack moral courage. It's tough. But as we stand before God each day, there we will find the courage to do what is right. There's a story about a great reformer by the name of Hugh Latimer. You can read about him in The Great Controversy. Great religious reformer in England. Hugh Latimer was opposed to the, relig- to the Reformation movement in England and, and was very vocal about it for quite some time. But after hearing the testimony of somebody, he was converted and became a very ardent follower of the Reformation. By some stroke of providence, Hugh Latimer was placed in the position as chaplain for King Henry VIII, the Ahab of his time. One historian said about King Henry VIII that there was no woman that he lusted for that he did not get, and there was no man that he hated that he did not kill. Ahab. And Hugh Latimer, this reformer, this godly man, 
had to stand before King Henry and deliver the word of God. One Christmas, he gave King Henry the Bible as a gift. And he dog-eared the page that says, adulterers and adulteresses will burn in hellfire. This guy had guts. He had moral courage. One Sunday morning, he stood before King Henry and everybody, that was, everybody else that was there, and he delivered a message that was offensive to the king. Again, he was like Ahab. You didn't want to mess with this guy. He killed many people to get what he wanted. But King Henry VIII liked Hugh Latimer, and so he gave him a second chance, and he said, next Sunday, I want you to stand before the congregation and publicly apologize for what you said today. And for a whole week, Hugh Latimer had time to think about this. Next Sunday came. Hugh stands, into the pulp, stands up in the pulpit. And this great man of the Reformation who died at the stake opened his Bible, read the same exact passage that he read the week before, And then he said this. Hugh Latimer, dost thou know before whom thou art this day to speak? To the high and mighty monarch who can take away thy life if thou offendest. Therefore take heed that thou speakest not a word that may displease him. But then consider well, Hugh, upon whose message thou art sent, even by the great and mighty God who is at all present and who beholds all thy ways and who is able to cast thy thy soul into hell. Therefore, take care that thou deliverest thy message faithfully. And then Hugh preached the same exact sermon he preached the week before, only with more vigor and more conviction. Moral courage. Moral courage. Everybody was afraid that he was going to die. And after lunch that Sunday afternoon, King Henry called him in before him. And he said, how dare you speak before me like that? He was upset. And Latimer said, that it was his duty to God that he was compelled to follow his conscience and to speak what the Lord had placed on his heart. And I can see it in my imagination, this great gulf between the two minds of Latimer and King Henry VIII. And when, when Latimer told King Henry that he was only discharging his conscience and telling him what the Lord had bound him to say, King Henry steps up from his throne and he walks down to Hugh Latimer and he puts his arms around him in an embrace and he says this, Blessed be God, I have so honest a servant. King Henry liked Hugh Latimer. This man had moral courage. 
The earth is starving today for people of moral courage. The world is not attracted to Christianity because Christianity is full of people that don't have moral courage. We are compelled when we read stories like this. We are in awe. We think, Lord, how could I be like that? But with the help of God, you can stand like Hugh Latimer stood. You can stand like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You can stand like Micaiah. You can have the moral courage that it takes to turn Malaysia upside down. I believe that with all my heart. But it starts in the morning. It starts in the morning. You can't have moral courage if you're not spending time with the one that gives it to you. And you will not have the moral courage to stand up for the word of God if you don't know what the word of God says. If you have not had an experience with that word, that has changed and transformed your life in such a way that you are going in the opposite direction of the world, you will not have the moral courage that it takes to stand like Micaiah and like Hugh Latimer. And so I ask you this morning, how is your devotional life with the Lord? It takes moral courage to get up early in the morning. Our lives are so busy. But that's not an excuse. At least it's not an excuse that's worth buying into. I asked you this morning, how many of you want to say, by God's grace, I want to have moral courage and stand in these last days for what is right? Stand with me. Now, I know how we are. We are creatures of pressure, social pressure. So some of you just stood because other people around you are standing and you don't want to look like an oddball. I know. But the next thing that I'm going to ask you, I want you to think about before you respond. This is very specific. How many of you want to say this afternoon, I will take one hour every morning to pray and study God's word. If you're already doing it, stay where you're at. I'm not talking to you. Praise the Lord that that's happening in your life. I'm talking to those of you that have a Reader's Digest relationship with the Lord. Just little nuggets here and there every now and then. Read a verse on a calendar or in some devotional and then at best. Those of you that are not spending that time with the Lord in the morning, how many of you would be willing to say today, I will take one hour every morning to read and study the word of God? Is there somebody that has the moral courage to do that? So I'm going to ask you to come on forward. So I want to have a special prayer for you. God bless you.
God bless you. Praise God. Praise God for young people that want to know the word of God. There is nothing that will transform your life like following through with the commitment that you're making this morning. No, our emotions are running. We're caught up in the emotion of the story. But let your intellect kick in right now. Tomorrow morning this starts. Set your alarm a little earlier. Go to bed a little bit earlier. Be strategic. How are you going to implement this and make it actually happen that you will spend one hour with God every single morning reading and praying and studying his word to come to know him better? How's it going to happen? God wants to reveal to you things in his word. The Bible tells us in Jeremiah 33, 3, Call unto me and I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. I claim that Bible promise often. I will show it to God in his Bible. You've promised me that if I call on you in my devotional time that you would show me great and mighty things. Okay, Father, show it to me. Such a powerful experience when it happens. And it can happen every single morning. Every single morning. I'm going to get you pointed in the right direction, okay? Tomorrow morning when you start your devotions, I want you to read the last 48 hours of the life of Christ. Choose your gospel. I don't care, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Choose your gospel and meditate on that portion of Scripture. It will radically transform your life. And pray that prayer. Show me great and mighty things which I have never seen out of this passage of Scripture. And behold, God do wonderful things for you. I want to pray for you this morning. And those of you that are out there standing, I want you to join me silently in prayer, praying for these young people, these individuals up here who have made the commitment to spend an hour with God every morning. Father in heaven, oh God, you are so merciful to us. Thank you for your tender love and compassion, for your patience. Lord, we're so quick to run in the direction of the world. We are so quick, Lord, to get discouraged in our reading of your word because it's difficult to understand. Lord, please, this afternoon I pray with all of my heart that those standing here before us this morning in a public display will stand before you tomorrow morning in the privacy of their room. And that as they open the Gospels and read the story of the last 48 hours of the life of Christ, and as they pray that prayer, show me great and mighty things which I know nothing of, oh God, may heaven touch earth, and may they have such a powerful experience in their devotion time tomorrow morning that it will transform their life, that they will crave the word of God more than food itself, as Job did. Lord, for the rest of us who are veterans of our devotional time, Lord, don't let it become stagnant. Don't let it become some sort of just ritual that we follow through every single morning without even giving it any thought. But Lord, I pray that you will breathe into our devotional time a freshness that we've never experienced. Oh God, we want the latter rain to be poured out. We want to receive your Holy Spirit. We want to finish this work through your power and your power alone. We've been working at this long enough and we want to give power back to you. 
Lord, raise up an army of young people in this country such as never has been seen. I pray that AOI will play a part of that. I pray that you bless every pastor in this, in this mission, that you will bless those that are leading out in the leadership of AOI and the mission and the union. Be with these men. Speak to them in their devotional time, Lord. Guide them as we seek to build up your kingdom here in Malaysia. Thank you, Father, for blessing us this morning. May you go with us, I pray. In Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.